Yeah, don't give me a hug. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, let me just get this going here. I've got to say that that time of worship was really powerful. So, yeah, I mean, I just felt undone in the presence of the Lord. I hope you guys felt that too. Um, but God is good. Amen. Amen. So, since this is the first time in our first service back, I wanted to take the opportunity to wish everybody a Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guys. I trust that 2024 will be a year filled with more of God's glory, more of His presence, more of His majesty, more of His leading in all of our lives. And I'm praying that for every single one of you that are part of Hope Rock Church. If you're not part of Hope Rock Church and you're a guest, I'll be praying for you too. I just want to know your name. So I'll just pray randomly for people that were here today. CJ, where are you? Thank you so much. CJ on the keys today, all the way from Indiana. He's like an adopted child of ours. Uh, I'm hoping that we're going to make that adoption permanent at some point in time. Because, uh, I mean, we really want him back here. Once Indiana's done, uh, I think, CJ, you need to come back to Texas, right? But anyway, CJ, thank you for coming. We met CJ many years ago in Roatan. We support a lot of uh, different ministries in Roatan. We go there every year. In fact, we're going on a mission trip next month as well. That's where we first met CJ. So to see him here in Lakeway, Texas, just blessing us with his abilities and his skills and his love for the Lord is such an awesome thing. So thank you, CJ, once again for making the trip down here. Thank you, Mary Beth and Joe for hosting him. Uh, you guys are awesome, and we're just so grateful you could come. Great. That's it. I'm done. Uh, have a great Sunday. I'm just kidding. So, be, Tim, don't get excited. Okay, now I'm actually going to go longer. Let me actually cha- let me change my time now. I was going to give you 30 minutes. Now I'm going to do 55 minutes. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Before I do get to the preach this morning, I want to share some things which really have been confirmed throughout the morning in what people have shared, what Kelsey shared, what Tim shared, what Kat shared this morning. And so I want to talk a little bit about some stuff. This past week, we had the privilege of going away as a family uh, with some friends of ours to Colorado. And besides the fact that I realized there is a reason South Africa doesn't have a winter Olympic sport team, (laughs) I was trying to spend some of my time praying, sorry, uh, and listening to what God was saying to us, both as an individual for me, but also for us as a church in the season that we're walking into. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm asking God, what does he want to say and what is he going to do, I tend to come up with what God wants to do myself, right? You know, so in my mind, I knew exactly what God was going to say, like 2024 was going to be a great year, was going to be a year of unmerited favor. And in comparison to the last three years of our lives, which let's be honest, have been quite challenging, 2024 was going to be different. It was going to be easy. Last year, I don't know if you remember, The first message I preached, I said to the church, and I felt like the Lord was taking us into a season of new beginnings, that God was doing something new in our church, that he was going to change the way things were. And I think to a large extent, we've walked into that. I then spoke about Jeremiah chapter 29 from verse 4 to verse 7, speaking about the welfare of the city that God's called us to, how in its welfare, we will find our welfare. And so to be able to partner with people in our region, like Johnson City, and to be able to help other churches in our city, like Rescue Church, has been a huge blessing for us because we have been seeking the welfare of the church, right, and welfare of the city. And so I thought, well, Lord, we tick those boxes, right? So everything's cool. So this year has to be the easy year. This is the year where we get to park off by the River Jordan and just relax with milk and honey and fans, and it's going to be great. (laughs) That's what I thought. 
Then on Wednesday this week, the 3rd of January, three days into the new year, on our way back from Colorado, holding on to the hopes and the steering wheel of an easy year, man, out of nowhere, an elk. Yes, I said an elk. And if you've never seen an elk, they are ginormous. Jumped right out into the middle of the road. And much to my surprise, the Lord never teleported me somewhere else like he did to Philip. The elk didn't just disappear. No, I hit the elk. Catherine had a beanie over her head, thank goodness, because otherwise it would have been even worse. She would have started screaming like long before that. She's like, what happened, what happened? What did we hit? And I was like, we hit an elk. So there we were, sitting in a broken car in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico. That's a place, in case you're wondering, nowhere, New Mexico. I was there for quite a few hours, wondering, well, Lord, okay, so this is what 2024 is going to be like. I don't know about you, but in those moments, often what ends up happening to me is I start to ask myself all sorts of questions. Questions like, maybe this year is going to be like this because God's disappointed in me. Or maybe this year is going to be like this because God's angry with me. And the challenge with those types of thoughts is if we listen to them long enough, we actually begin to believe them. When the reality couldn't actually have been further from the truth. I say that because in that moment... In my mopiness, I failed to realize the reality of the situation. The fact is God wasn't punishing me. He doesn't do that. Neither was God angry with me by sending a demonic elk into my path. (laughs) It was in fact the opposite. It was a demonstration of God's faithfulness. Now I know you're probably thinking, I don't know about that. That seems like a little bit of a stretch. How is the elk jumping into the road a demonstration of God's faithfulness? Well, I'll tell you. It was a miracle that none of us in the car were injured. My kids were fine. In fact, Arabella, she was just like, where's the internet, Dad? I can't connect to the iPad. (laughs) It was a miracle that there were no other cars on that stretch of the highway in that instant. It was a miracle how the Lord gave me enough time to see this monstrosity of a beast come swerving over the side of the road so I could miss it and not hit it square on because had I hit it square on, I would have had an elk on my, my, basically on my lap, which I'm sure would have been uncomfortable for the elk. And if that wasn't enough, instead of being stuck in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico for days on end, because that's what I felt at one point, I thought we're going to be stuck here forever. The stalling people, I said, they're going to send a tow truck. I was like, that's great. How do we get out of here? They're like, I don't know. I'm like, can't you get someone to fetch you? It was a miracle that Auntie and Marika were 55 miles away from us. They could come back, fetch us, fetch all of our luggage, and take us to the rental car place. And so... It was in that moment that I realized while 2024 could have most certainly started without encountering an elk, it had started with a reminder that although we as believers are going to go through just desperate times where our routines won't work or things won't work out the way we thought they'd work out, when we're going to face setbacks, we're going to walk through the fire, and yes, even when we wreck our cars and sometimes even when we wreck our lives, through it all, if we look close enough, is the reminder that there is a God who loves us and is there with us every step of the way. Now, I know this incident for many of you is a minuscule incident. People in this church have walked through some really tough stuff. And I don't want to make this incident seem more than that, but I just do want to remind us that Jenna said it. Jenna stood up here and she said it. God is faithful and he is with us every moment of every day. And it's a good thing that the Lord allowed me to see this revelation for what it was because I believe later on the Lord spoke to me about the season that we'll be walking into as a church and as people. And I believe this is not just for Hope Rock Church. I think this is for the church. Now, I'm not 
prophesying to the church. What I am saying is the Lord spoke to me through a passage of Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 to 15. I'm not going to read it this morning because I have a lot of other stuff to get through, although Tim said I can preach for 55 minutes. But I would encourage you to go read it. Let me explain to you what's happening in these verses. The first five verses of Jeremiah chapter 32, you encountered Jeremiah, who unlike all the prophets of Israel, were prophesying to the king Zedekiah all the things that he wanted to hear. They would tell Zedekiah, listen, don't worry, Babylon's coming, but we're going to win. We're going to whip them. Those Babylonians don't know what's coming. Everything's going to be fine. The God of Israel and Judah will defend us. Jeremiah, on the other hand, in that particular situation, is in prison. And the reason he's in prison is he won't tell Zedekiah what he wants to hear. In fact, he says, Zedekiah, listen to me, and let me tell you this once and once only. Judah will be invaded. Jerusalem will fall. The Babylonians will take the nation of Judah into exile. What's more, Zedekiah, if that wasn't bad enough, you, buddy, are going to Babylon too. And so Jeremiah is in prison. The next part of the chapter then changes. It seems a little bit random, but it starts to tell us about a piece of property that the Lord says to Jeremiah in that instance to go and buy. It's a place called Anatoth. The Lord says, go and buy this piece of land. Your uncle, Haniel, will come to you and he's going to offer you this piece of land. For I think it was 20 pieces of silver and you've got to buy it. Now you've got to understand the context here. Anatoth, Jeremiah's ancestral land, was currently occupied by the Babylonian invading army. Nobody wanted it. No one was buying Babylonian uh, possessed land or you know, land that was currently filled with the enemy. Nobody wanted that land. Yet, Jeremiah had to buy it. And you think, well, why? Why did Jeremiah have to buy that? Why did God ask Jeremiah to buy that piece of land? And the answer is when you understand the broader context of what Jeremiah had been saying throughout the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 is a great chapter. We all know that. You know, the Lord wants to prosper us. He's got good plans for us. He wants the best for us, Right? Obviously, that doesn't count all the exile that the nation of Israel went into as well. But the point is this. Jeremiah said that even though Babylon will win, even though Jerusalem will fall, 70 years later, God will be faithful and he will bring us back from exile. And we will once again walk into a land that was once decimated by war, but it will again be fruitful. And so God was saying to Jeremiah, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Are you going to believe my word to be true? And so in this passage, there's two things that stood out for me. First of all, this year and in the season we're going into, because it might last longer than a year, our God doesn't work in 365-day calendar days, just so you know. And so I can't tell you how long the season is, but I do believe the season we're walking into is a season where, like Jeremiah, we have to be prepared to stand on God's Word where we have to speak God's word, the unadulterated word of God, not what people want to hear, not what is attractional, not what's going to grow Hope Rock Church quicker, but what the Lord has laid in our heart through his holy scripture. It's a time, friends, I believe to call the church and its people and the lost to a place of repentance, friends, a place where we can get back on our knees before a holy God, friends. Repentance precedes revival. And so if we're going to wait for the exile to be over and for us to walk into the fruitfulness that God has got for us, we have to preach God's word in its entirety. And so I'm saying to us together, will we be the kind of people who walk out there into the streets and into the neighborhoods and preach God's word in love, but in its truth, telling people that there is an eternal hell waiting for them if they do not make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. And the second thing I feel strongly is that like Jeremiah, God is asking us, will you believe in my promises? You know, to sit here and, and listen to so many testimonies of God's faithfulness, even amidst, like Jenna, having gone through difficult times in her life, 
That's standing on God's faithfulness. The Lord is asking us, will you buy the land that I've given you as an inheritance? Will you believe my promises to be true? And if you do, will you take my word at face value and say, no matter what I go through this year, no matter who the next president is in November, no matter which political party is running the country, no matter how good the economy is or how bad it is, no matter how big your bank account is or how low it is, will you believe my word to be true? Or will you panic? This is a year, friends, of testing. And I believe like Jeremiah, our hearts and our faith will be tested. Proverbs has one of those nasty proverbs that it has in there, every hidden here and there, you know, there's some nasty ones that you read, like, oh, I don't like that one. It says, the crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Our hearts are going to be tested, not because God doesn't love us, because He loves us enough that He wants the silver to be free of dross, that He can see the reflection of His face in the silver, friends. Testing's never easy, and I'm sorry if I started your year off with this kind of word. Okay, great. (laughs) Testing is good news. Because just like it took a demonic elk to remind me how much God loves me and how close he truly is, when our faith is tested and we walk through the testing of our faith, we encounter a loving God who is more interested in our character than he is in our comfort. A God who is more interested in taking us from one degree of glory to the next. And so that's the word I'd like to share for the year. And uh, I'm trusting that you receive it well. And when the testing comes, stand on God's word. It is never going to fail us. Now we can get back to Galatians. Can you go back to the title slide? No, don't do it. I'm doing it. You see that? Who's that? No. Charlie, you said it. I didn't say Charlie. I was just asking the question. We thought, you know, that's actually Abraham. Just kidding. It's not Charlie. But I saw it this morning. And for the first time, I was like, wow, that actually looks like Charlie. You know, Charlie, you look rugged there. You look strong. I just want you to know that, bro. You know, are you going to test me? So this morning, we're back in Galatians. And since we have been out of it for six weeks, I want to remind us where we left off. The last installment focused on Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. Paul started that sort of passage with those words, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But by that point, Paul had already set up some foundations. He'd already told us some really critical things that we need to know, like the gospel message is actually very scandalous. It's scandalous because it offends religion. It offends works-based righteousness. It offends your ability to save yourself. But now Paul also tells us that the actual and true scandal is not that the gospel is easy or that our mechanism of salvation is easy. What is actually more scandalous is when we start to think that we can earn our way back into God's favor. That's the real scandal. Paul goes on also to tell us how dying to the law actually leads us to living an authentic life with God. And the reason why he says that is that he wants us to understand that when we get saved, this is not just a prayer that we pray. It is a fundamental shift in who we are. We've moved from darkness to light, from death to life, from being blind to finally being able to see. We are seated in salvation in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You are not the same person you once were before you were saved, just a better version. No, you are born again. You have been born again by the Spirit of God. You are completely and totally different. And then in Galatians 3 verses 1 to 5, Paul goes on to continue to reiterate, salvation is only possible as a mechanism of the cross. The Lord doesn't save. We'll talk about that today. But the law, preaching the law is not going to get anyone into heaven. 
Only the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice and his atonement makes us worthy of being saved. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, validates that message. Because when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes and he lives inside of us. It's a supernatural event. We're forever changed. He also tells us how the Lord doesn't only fail to empower us to live a better life, but it also fails to sanctify us. The law won't make us more holy. The only way we become more holy is allowing the law that's written on our hearts to become the people that we are. And that's a product of God and a product of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then Paul said that preaching the gospel results in more of God. We looked at the examples throughout scripture. Whenever the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit is poured out. When we preach the gospel message, friends, and this is important for us as a church, when you go out into the streets, don't preach a message of religion. We're not interested in religion here. We don't want no religion. We want the Holy Spirit-empowered gospel message. Salvation is by the blood of Christ, and that is it. When we do that, we'll see, that we'll see God move in our meetings. And that brings us to today where Paul's going to continue with this thread, and he's going to remind us two things. He's going to tell us what justification means, which he's told us before, but he's going to tell us again. And then he's going to tell us how we can live a life that is free of the curse that the law brings. So turn with your Bibles to Galatians 3 verse 6. Uh, we'll read it together. I'll read the passage and then we will break it up. But let me pray first. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your spirit. I pray that you would empower everything, Lord, that I have to say this morning, that it would be your words, not mine. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified this morning in all that we do. And I pray that you would pour out your power and your presence today so that we leave with fresh revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read it together. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what we immediately notice is what Paul is covering in this passage is not new. It's not new thoughts. It's not fresh stuff that Paul hasn't said before in the book of Galatians. However, Paul has introduced another character. He's brought in Abraham. This is actually second, Paul's second big argument in the book of Galatians. The first argument started in Galatians 2 verse 15 and ran all the way to chapter 3 verse 5. The first argument covered everything that we're going to read in the second argument, but now Paul's using a different tact. And we have to remember the audience that he's speaking to. He's speaking to a church that he helped plant that was now beset with questions around this group of people that came in there and made their faith something that it wasn't, the Judaizers. And so now he's bringing Abraham back into the story to say, well, let me show you everything that I've said from a Jewish perspective. Let me show you everything I've said from somebody who is an Israelite. Let me explain to you why what I preached is actually the truth. 
And what Paul's going to do is he's going to remind us how putting ourselves back under religion or putting ourselves back under works or putting ourselves back under the law is actually both unhelpful for us but also incongruent with the gospel message. And so the first point I have for us this morning is this. Abraham is actually the perfect model for our justification today. Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But here's a question. Why do you think Paul chose Abraham to be the example of this particular argument? I mean, let's be honest. There were other people that God accepted before Abraham. God accepted Adam, both before and after the fall. God accepted Abel, who brought the sacrifice of the goats or the sheep to God. He rejected Cain, which is actually quite interesting because that in itself speaks to justification by faith alone. Abel's sacrifice was something that he couldn't create on his own. He couldn't make sheep himself. The sheep had to be born through its parents. And so what Abel brought to God was a sacrifice that said, I did nothing for this. I'm just bringing you this thing that you've given me and I'm bringing it back to you. Cain, on the other hand, brought produce. Now, I don't know about you. We have a tendency in our house to kill things, especially plants. Maybe I'm saying all of us, love, all of us, not just you, okay? <laughs> produce takes effort, energy, and it requires diligence to make something happen. Cain brought something that he produced by the sweat of his brow, and God said, I reject that. Your works are not good enough for God. Never will be. Right. Enoch was accepted by God, right? He was taken up into a whirlwind into heaven. Man, I've got to speak to that guy about how that happened. I mean, what kind of ship did they use to take him there? <laughs> oh, that's a joke, guys. I'm looking at Kelly. I don't know. Uh, sorry, Ryan. Noah was accepted by God. He was the righteous man. So why Abraham? What made Abraham so special? Two reasons. Paul's speaking to this group of people, and again, he's speaking about his Jewishness. First of all, Abraham was through, it was through the seed of Abraham that the promised Messiah would come. So Paul uses Abraham as the example. Secondly, and probably more critical to Paul's argument, is the simple fact that Abraham is actually the first person in the Bible where the doctrine of justification by faith alone actually gets unpacked quite in a lot of detail. So what does justification mean? Justification in its simplest forms means whether we are accepted by God or not, or whether we are acceptable to God. It's God covering us with His righteousness, not our righteousness. It's a process that kicks everything off in our relationship with God. You cannot stand before a holy God unless you are justified, declared righteous before Him. It's a process that allows us to come into the presence of God boldly, in Abraham's case, he was justified not because of what he did, but because of his faith in what God had said. Three steps to justification. It's very interesting. Go back to, uh, sorry, can you go to Galatians 3, 6? Yeah. Abraham, just as Abraham believed, there's the first word, believed. Step number one, counted, reckoned, credited to his account, righteous. Three steps, belief, God gives you his righteousness and you're done. You just have to believe the promises of God. That's what Abraham did. Now, I think it's at this point that it's important for us to understand just how magnificent the justification of Abraham truly is. Because maybe you, like me, are here this morning, and sometimes you struggle with feeling unworthy of God's love. I know none of you do because you guys are awesome. You get this. I mean, it's easy for you. But for me, there are times in my life where I feel unworthy of the love of God. 
There are times in my life where I allow the enemy to come and tell me that I'm not good enough for God. And I start to struggle with understanding and receiving this level of justification. So let's look at Abraham. Abraham was not godly when he was justified. He wasn't godly. There's no mention of him ever being godly. Which tells us that justification has got nothing to do with our works prior to our salvation. It's got nothing to do with the state that you're in prior to your salvation. Justification is a product of God's grace. Abraham wasn't Jewish when he was justified. He was in fact a moon-worshipping Babylonian from Ur. That tells us that justification has nothing to do with your nationality. It has nothing to do with your race, your heritage, where you come from, whether your parents were Christian or not. Justification is a gift of God's grace. Abraham wasn't circumcised when he was justified. Telling us that justification has got nothing to do with outward religious acts. Justification has to do with our hearts and God's grace in them. Abraham wasn't even baptized when he was justified. I feel like I sound like a rap there. Abraham wasn't even baptized when he was justified. There we go. I've got to get better at that, right? Telling us that baptism has got nothing to do with justification. Baptism has got nothing to do with salvation. The thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, said Jesus to him. Not go get circumcised, then get baptized, then say five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers, and then you can be accepted into the kingdom. No, today you will be with me in paradise. Justification happens in the heart of God. It's given to us without us doing anything. Except accepting the finished work of the cross. Abraham had nothing in and of himself to give to God. And I want to just say this to you this morning in case you are struggling with this, but you have nothing that you can give to God to make him accept you. And that's precisely Paul's point. Nothing we can ever do can contribute to our justification. It is and will only be a product of what Jesus did that gives us the covering of Christ's righteousness, that makes us acceptable before the Father, the holiest being in all of creation. So the next time the devil tries to make you feel unworthy like he does to me, remind him that yes, Satan, I actually am unworthy. But Christ in me is not unworthy, and that's okay for God. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul is making quite a big argument with this. He says, everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus become Christ followers, in other words, becomes a son of Abraham. Now think about what he's saying, especially again in the context of the Judaizers, the Jewish Christians who were so caught up in their heritage that they wanted everyone to become Jewish in order for them to be saved. Paul is saying that the only mechanism that you can actually become a part of the family of God is to accept that nothing that you can do can make you worthy. It's what Jesus has done for you. That tells me that there's a lot of people today who think they are in the family of Abraham, but actually aren't. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's saying some critical things in this verse, or in these two verses. The first thing that he's saying is that the gospel message has always been God's plan. Justification was always God's plan. Paul says that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. Now that's interesting in and of itself. Do you know that the scripture, the word graphe, means the document, the canon of scripture, this book that we have today? Did that exist when Abraham was alive? 
No, it didn't. Paul's using the word scripture to denote God. And it's a couple of things there that are really important. One, God's plan has always been Jesus. From the beginning of time, before the earth was created, before any one of us was spoken into existence, God's plan has always been Jesus. But what about people that died before Jesus? Well, they looked forward to the promise. You see, before the cross, everyone who had faith and believed what God had said, that one day a Messiah would come, are justified by their faith in the Messiah. Then those of us who live this side of the cross, we look back to the cross and we say we believe that what Jesus did is total and final. And because of what Christ did, I can be saved. God's plan has always been the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who stands before us, before him and intercedes on our behalf. Hallelujah. God's plan has also always included the Gentiles. Always. Isaiah 56. Is it 56, Charlie? 56 verse 4. My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. This is Old Testament stuff, not New Testament stuff. The Gentiles were always meant to be grafted in because the family of Abraham is not a nationality. It is a faith group of people who believe in Jesus Christ. It also tells us that Paul's view of Scripture, man, he saw this as God's very word. Perhaps we need to pay more attention to the words written in this book, all of them, from Genesis to Revelations. Maybe we need to be the people who stop trying to skip over stuff that we don't like and instead preach it with power. This is God's word. Man, it changes lives. I want to say this to you just as an aside. We realize that through Abraham's life, he is the perfect example of justification. And I say that to you because through Abraham, we can realize that we need to start freeing ourselves from all the stuff that we heap on our lives, the stuff that we think has to make us more worthy before God. Sometimes I equate my salvation with how God feels about me, or more importantly, how I feel God feels about me. I don't know if you've ever done that. Have you ever thought what God thinks about you? And you think, oh, he must be pretty sad. Sometimes I do that. Whenever that happens in my life, I default back into thinking I need to do stuff and earn my salvation and get back to God and do something right for Him in order for me to be able to get up and put a smile on my face and say, God still loves me. Whether that's reading your devotionals or spending quiet time with the Lord, whatever your religious act is, now there's nothing wrong with those things, but whatever that thing is that you can pat yourself on the back and say, God accepts me more today than He did yesterday, you need to be very careful of that thing, friends, because that thing can come into the way of what Jesus did for you on the cross. For so many years, I read the first beatitude wrong. I was reading Oswald Chambers. And the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For so many years, I read that to think that the poor in spirit were those of us who were humble. And so what I did was I would continuously try to make myself more humble so that I could be more acceptable to God. I don't know if you realize what I was doing, but I was doing something that I felt God needed in order for me to be accepted by Him. That's religion, right? The word poor in spirit has actually got nothing to do with humility. That word poor is the Greek word tokos, and it means to be a beggar. It means to be a pauper. And so what the first beatitude and what Jesus was saying is those who come to me understanding that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have nothing to offer me, will be the very people that inherit the kingdom of heaven. When you go to God and you think you've got stuff for him, you're in a dangerous place. We need to become spiritually bankrupt so that we can say, Lord, it is not me that could do this, but Christ in me that is enough. Now he talks about the curse of the law. 
Second point, relying on the law or our works results in us being cursed. Sorry, guys, I've only got one page left. Galatians 3 verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law under a curse, what is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You may be thinking, but hang on, isn't the law something that is actually a good thing for us to follow? I mean, it creates a great moral framework. Yes, it was given to the nation of Israel to make them different and distinct and separate from all the other nations around them. And so shouldn't we follow the law to some extent because it is helpful for us? I want to tell you, that if you choose to follow the law, that's fine. And you can say, oh, I like these things. I'm going to do my best to honor them. But if you choose to rely on the law as the mechanism of your salvation, in other words, the checkbox that you can say, I did this, I did this, the Ten Commandments, I've got those down and I'm really great with them. You will only ever find yourself in places of depression and despair. Why? Because you, the law demands total and complete obedience. There's no half in the law. It's total and complete obedience. The law never provides an absolute way of forgiveness. Do you realize that? You can go through the entire law. It doesn't ever provide a way for absolute forgiveness. That's why every year you've got to bring a sacrifice of atonement. And in the tabernacle system of the law, you could go and make yourself clean. Catherine spoke about the lepers this morning. And you could go make yourself clean to come back into the camp. But believe me, you were going to be out of the camp before you knew it again. And so people walked around under the law continuously filled with guilt and shame because they could never match up to the standards that the law asked of them. Paul says it clearly, cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things, not some things, every single law ever written, you have to abide by all of them and you have to do them. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And so to avoid being cursed, to avoid feeling the weight of your sin, you had to obey the law, all of them, all the time. 60 seconds in every minute, 60 minutes in every hour, 24 hours in every day, 365 days in every year, and then repeat. How many of you think you can do that? I can't do it. I don't know any human being that can do it, but there was one. His name was Jesus. He did this perfectly. Now, the problem here with this is that it doesn't mean that you can't look good while trying to follow the law. Some people are really good at looking good. That's what the Pharisees did, right? They washed the outside of the cup. They made everyone think that they were doing everything great. Look at me, I'm following the law, I'm amazing, but my heart is dead and it's rotten, blah, 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 but nobody knows it because you can't see into my heart, so it's fine. Paul himself said that when it came to the law, he was able to do that. He says this in Philippians 3 verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says he was blameless. So what's Paul saying? Did he follow the law in its entirety? No, he was saying, according to you, he looked like he was following the law. He was a great religious person. He was a great Pharisee. But Paul knew more than anyone else that it was impossible to follow the 10th commandment. It's actually impossible. Paul tells us in Romans 7, he says this, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet had the law said, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But sin, seizing an opportunity through that commandment, produced in me all types of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul says that the very law that told him not to covet caused him to start coveting because now the moment you think you're not holy enough, you start coveting more holiness and now you want to become more holy. You want to pretend to be someone that you aren't. The law produces a curse. Incidentally, if you try and follow the law, 
it will also create anger and bitterness towards God because you can never live up to it. Third point. Relying on the finished work of the cross is the only thing that can free us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Because the law demanded perfect obedience and nobody could ever be perfectly obedient, there needed to be another way. And thank the Lord that he provided another way. It's called the way of faith. Paul's actually quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, who actually quotes from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6, where it says, And Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness, except Habakkuk, Habakkuk takes the thread of the thought one step further. Foither. It's my New York accent right there. Foither. Or Boston, I don't know what it is. Habakkuk's saying that not only did Abraham receive and get his righteousness as accounted to him because of his faith, but he says this, that if you really want to live, if you want to live your life for God, you need to be a person of faith. You need to believe in what Jesus did. Only then can the Holy Spirit take residence in you, and only then can you have the sensitivity that you need to actually start living a godly life. You are not living until you meet the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and he fills you with his presence. At that point in time, you're no longer dead. You are alive. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul is contrasting two realities, faith and the law. They couldn't be more diametrically opposed to each other. Faith is a product of what Jesus did. The law is a product of what you do in your flesh. This is never good enough. This is always enough. And I want to say this to you because we do this all the time as people in the church. We start off our journey in faith. We love what Jesus did. We're so grateful for the sacrifice. We accepted, we loved, we freed, we redeemed. And then all of a sudden we start to move away from the faith side and we start going to the law side. And we try to take as many people with us. We tell them, no, no, you've got to start changing. Look at you, you've got to do this. Look at the Bible says, what kind of person are you? Friends, you can't have one foot in the law and one foot in faith. It's either or. You're either 100% in faith in what Jesus did or you're 100% in the law. You can't have either. Or you can't have a little bit of both. Nobody's smiling today. <laughs> Last point, and I'm closing now. The band can come up. The curse is something that God never intended for us to live under. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. That, by the way, is the law. That's what happens if you're hanged on a tree, you were cursed. You wouldn't be buried inside the gates. You wouldn't be buried in a proper funeral place. You would be buried with all the weird, dodgy people, the criminals out there. That's where Jesus ultimately would have been buried, but he wasn't because he's not buried, he's alive. Hallelujah. You see, we have the opportunity today, this morning, to live a life of freedom because the curse was never ours to carry. Jesus carried that curse up the Via de la Rosa. He carried that curse up Golgotha to the hills of Calvary. And then what he did was he nailed the curse. He didn't do it himself, but the curse was nailed to the cross. He did that so that he could become the curse for us, so that we would never have to be the curse. And when he breathed his last, the, that curse was forever broken. He, he, he did it. He finished the work that he was sent to do. And that's why those words that he cried out at the end are so important and they will resound to eternity. Tetelesta means it is finished. 
The curse has been broken. No longer does anyone ever have to come under the curse of the law because there is a new way. There is a new covenant. There is Jesus Christ. And not only did he break the curse, but for everyone who enters into the finished work of the cross, he gave us another right. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When the way was opened for us as Gentiles to believe in Jesus, remember Gentiles were never meant to follow the law. You know that. The law was not for anyone that wasn't Jewish. But when the way was opened for the Gentiles, Paul says that at the very same time that Jesus did what he did on the cross, he freed the Jews from the law too. Isn't that amazing? They came out of that because the true Abraham is those who follow Christ. Because the sin-bearing atonement had been paid for, the proof that we have today as we accept Christ is that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. I really do believe that the worldwide blessing of Abraham spoken in here is not just about being part of a family. It is about the Spirit of God existing in His people. That same Spirit is open to us today. He is God. He is real, and He is proof that we are loved. He accepts us, not as we should be, but as exactly the way we are right now. And I want to free you this morning, because if you think that, but Mark, I've got a long way to go, join the club. We will never be perfectly obedient this side of eternity. Do you know that? You will never get your faith 100% right this side of eternity. But one day we will have it when we are in eternity with Christ. So can I ask you to stand? We're going to sing one last song. But I really feel like people need to experience the freedom that Jesus died for. Maybe again or maybe for the first time, I'm not sure. But if you're here today and you're guilty of allowing rules, regulations and religion to determine where you stand in your relationship with God. Can you raise your hand? I'm raising my hand because I've done it before. I want to pray for those of us who have struggled with that, who have struggled with our worthiness before God as a mechanism of what we do or how close we feel we are to Him. I want to pray that God would free us today and remind us of what He's done. And so I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to sing one last song. If anyone else does need prayer, you're welcome to come up here to the front and just hang out here. We'll pray with you. Train Kelsey, Tim and Kerry, Kat and I, Charlie, Mark and Kelly, Lily and Jeremy, or Kurt and Mary, the deacons. Yeah, we'll find somebody will come and pray for you. Whatever it is, if you need healing, healing is real, friends. God still heals people today. We sang it in the song. If you need breakthrough, God still brings breakthrough. If you need freedom from something, maybe an addiction, God brings freedom from those things too. Just come up to the front, but let's pray. Lord, I pray for every single person who raised their hand, Lord, including myself. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would impress on our hearts now more than ever how accepted and loved we are already because of what what our Savior, Jesus Christ, has done. I pray that every single time the enemy tries to get us caught up in the law again or in religion or in works, that Holy Spirit, you would set the alarm bells off. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the freedom that we need to walk into the fullness that you have for us. And I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.